Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, Arts News. were sounds from the wave of underpaid teachers' protests and walkouts that have swept the nation, in this case the music teachers staging a protest on the steps of the state capitol in Louisville, Kentucky, and in a protest performance of We're Not Gonna Take It, and later in the show to address the double-edged sword of that now iconic song being embraced by both the left and the right in this country is its creator, Twisted Sisters D. Snyder, coming up. the holiday season is the biggest time of the year for shopping. And here to report about that is Jason Unruh, though it's not the kind of shopping you may be thinking. As the pandemic continues to impoverish more and more people in the United States, one thing, one industry, is at least growing. No, not Amazon, although it's also growing too. Shoplifting is growing. Now, since uh, since the pandemic started, uh, Capital Supermarket says that thefts have gone up by more than double. The amount of people coming into the store stealing has more than doubled. And this is a thing that is industry-wide, especially for grocery stores and big box stores like Walmart, who tend to be the primary victims of shoplifting. So it's interesting that as people are getting poorer and struggling to make ends meet, shoplifting increases. I know, it's weird. It's like there's a, it's like there's a connection between poverty and crime. But uh, some people, at least one person from Capital Supermarket said at least once a day he spots someone slipping a package of meat, package of rice, food, or, or whatever under their skirt or into their jacket, diapers, shampoo, laundry detergent. Aren't these necessities? You know, these aren't treats. These aren't luxury items. These are the staple things that you need to get by. Interviews with more than a dozen retailers have shown that the shift there has been a shift away from regular consumer goods that would be considered not essential to things that would be essential. So retailers, security experts, police departments across the country say what's being taken is more like staples, like bread, pasta, or baby formula. If you're at the point in your life where you need to steal baby formula, you're in a pretty bad situation. And I, for one, don't really feel like getting mad at someone for having to steal baby food. I mean, that's that's kind of really messed up. So, you know what I mean? But what's important here is that security experts, grocery stores, police officers are recognizing that these thefts are of basic staple foods. Things that people need to survive. Now, at the same time, more than 20 million Americans are on some form of unemployment assistance 
with 12 million about to run out of benefits the day after Christmas unless Congress gets around to kind of approving something. Right now it stands at about $908 billion, most of which goes to private companies, and particularly the very large ones, many of whom don't even need it. So, it's already an estimated 54 million Americans struggle with with uh, hunger this year. That's a very misleading uh, statistic, considering that hunger defined in the United States is different than how it's uh, hunger is defined across the world. Internationally, hunger is defined as, did you miss a meal due to poverty? Whereas in the United States, it says, did you have enough at every meal? So it's it's kind of a misleading statistic. Again, another divide between the first and the third world. However, what is significant here is that it is a 45% increase from 2019. People who are essentially saying that they are food insecure. So what's important here is how much it's grown due to the pandemic year that has been 2020 and is mercifully almost over. And this is all data that was been that has been released by the US Department of agriculture because they're the guys who know about food. Now at the same time in past years, SNAP, WIC, you know all those things designed to help people get food have been cut by President Trump. Many of the people needing that are his supporters. Middle America, some of the 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 working poor, right wing, etc who have very clearly acted against their own interest and are continuing to defend acting against their own interest today. Food banks are reporting shortages, like demand being higher than ever before. Food banks, uh, pantries, they're being inundated with more people than have ever been before. You saw previously with Texas, the very long line of people's cars lining up to go to the food bank, while at the same time continuing to insist on wasting resources by contesting the election. You know, rather than, you know, the people that are going hungry kind of thing. Because that's that's priorities in Texas society. Only way to think about that. But what's what's remarkable here is that despite this continuing to grow, mass amounts of people continue to support Donald Trump. Now I'm not singing the praises of Joe Biden. He's a complete tool. What's interesting is the insistence upon acting against one's own interests because of essentially conspiracy theories. And it's mind-boggling to me as an outsider, someone who's outside the United States looking in going, oh my God, what are you doing? It's, it's uh, something like that. Many of us in the world are kind of looking at you in, 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 in this way. But hunger is increasing across the country due to this due to the pandemic and it's about to get a lot worse after Christmas. So I think it's about time that maybe Congress got up off its ass and did something because it's important to warn you, the public of how bad things really are because you, you can't decide what to do, or how to act or how to react unless you have the proper information in front of you. And that is what you need to know. And that is the purpose of this. Reporting from Niagara Falls, Jason Unruh. And that was Arts News for this week. And coming up next on Arts Express, when I got invited to Washington to testify with Frank Zappa and John Denver, I was honored to go and represent rock and roll. But when I left, a reporter stuck a mic in my face and said, D, how do you feel? And the word that came out of my mouth was dirty. Here's Twisted Sisters, Dee Snyder, talking about attacks against him at that 1985 Senate music censorship hearing, the subsequent hounding by the FBI against him, and much more, including a holiday song he's created despite the ongoing pandemic. First, another song of his that's enduring through the decades, and his misgivings that it's been embraced by the right-wing QAnon as well. All right, mister, what do you think you're doing? You call this a room? This is a pigsty. I want you to straighten up this area now! 
I want to rock. cowgirl names okay and welcome to our show i'm glad to be here okay with the release of the magic of christmas day would you say that's a new and different direction for you you know i think people hopefully by this point have come to expect the unexpected yeah. from d snyder uh you know i i mean i've done a broadway album called d does broadway where i did sh uh metal show tunes uh, and uh, Twisted Sister did an album uh, quite a few years ago called uh, Twisted, uh, Twisted Christmas, which was uh, metal covers of, of Christmas songs. So I think people have come to expect the unexpected. But when I first wrote it, which was over 30 years ago at the behest of my wife who asked me to write her a Christmas song, that's like late, late 80s. And I, I wouldn't, didn't want anyone to know that Dee Snyder had written a Christmas song at that point. That would have been image killing. But uh, at this point... Nobody really knows what to make of my image. And what can you say about releasing your positive music during this pandemic, and did that reality influence you? Very much. Very, very much, Prairie. Uh, first of all, so this is the only song I ever wrote for not for commercial release. Uh, I had session musicians record it. It was a gift for my wife. Merry Christmas, Suzette. We've been together 44 years now. So, um, And that was that. Done. Mid-'90s, I get a phone call. Uh, the engineer who worked on my session uh, is now a producer, producing Celine Dion's Christmas record. She's looking for new music. He plays her, my wife's song, she wants to record it. So it winds up being on her album, These Are Special Times, and sells 14 million copies of that record. It's one of the biggest selling holiday record in history. And um, But now, this year is a very difficult time for everybody, and reflecting on how we're at each other's throats, throats, really, and reflecting on the spirit of the magic of Christmas Day, which was that Christmas was the time, the holidays were the time where we set our differences aside, even for a few hours. We came together as family, as friends, and then, you know what I mean, and we celebrated. And that seems gone. Even with the COVID thing, it's, families are at each other's throats, friends are at each other's throats this year, and I'm hoping the message seeps in and reminds people. I mean, Perry, during World War I, there was a ceasefire called during Christmas, and the Germans and the Allies came out of the trenches, put down their guns, and celebrated Christmas on the battlefield together. This is true. There was a movie made about this. And then the next day, they went back to shooting each other, but for a moment, they were human beings, they were people, and they said, hey, let's not forget that. So I'm hoping to send this message out there. And speaking of being each other's throats, what can you say about when your phone was tapped and mail checked by the FBI after you challenged the censorship in the music hearings? You know, uh, when I got invited to Washington to testify in 85 with Frank Zappa and John Denver, may they both rest, rest in peace, um, uh, you know, I was honored to go and, and, and represent rock and roll. Uh, but I walked out of that there feeling very disappointed in what I witnessed up close. You know, as I left the room, a reporter stuck a mic in my face and said, Dee, how do you feel? As I left test my testimony, and the word that came out of my mouth was dirty. 
I was really disappointed. Even though it was in the 80s and I was a rocker, I still had an idea. I thought that Washington was somehow still a better place, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, and so and after that, yes, my mail was checked, my packages were checked, my phones were tapped. I became public enemy number one. Why? Because I spoke my mind, and maybe I embarrassed some of the politicians with being intelligent and and drug free and and make and, and reasonable and making sense about why censorship is wrong. Um, so it, it was a, a disheartening time. But I did. I feel like I did the right thing, and people seem, over the years, appreciation for it has grown. Oh, yeah. And regarding the look and identity, Twisted Sister, you once said, I went for an outrageous form of expressing myself to show that I was somebody. Please elaborate. Well, you know, um, Twisted Sister was, first of all, I I, I was an attention hog, the oldest (laughs) child in an entire family family of six plus the oldest uh, cousin and nephew and grandchild. For a brief moment in time, I was the star child, but then as everybody started having kids, I was shoved aside. So I really wanted attention. Then you bring out that when Twisted started, it was the disco era. And uh, for rock and roll, it was, a, it was a, the scene was dead, and bands were expected to be heard and not seen. Play the hits. Nobody wants to see you. And so Twisted Sister was being defiant and dressing up, literally wearing women's clothing back then, just to make people go, what the heck is that? You know, and um, and that's what it was all about, get attention, get a reaction, because damn it, I will not go quietly into the night. So really, you know, I was looking for attention, and we got it. And what are your thoughts about the many manifestations of the iconic song, We're Not Gonna Take It, across the years? including teacher strikes in West Virginia, Kentucky, Oklahoma, and elsewhere? Well, on, uh, on uh, CBS Sunday morning, they showed a bunch of elderly who were, uh, who were quarantining in uh, homes. Uh, they Zoomed a version of We're Not Going to Take It. Of all these, these <laughs> elderly people singing We're Not Going to Take It, the song has transcended the metal genre. It's transcended the 80s. It's transcended the 80s. And now it's really a folk song. I mean, it's just everybody knows the song and uses it. It's their go-to. And for many people, I think 2020 has been the year of where I'm going to take it uh, on all sides. So sometimes I'm I'm honored and pleased, like with the teachers, and when I see those elderly people using the song. And then other times, I'm not too happy about it when uh, QAnon now has a video using we're not going to take it. So, I mean, but, you know, this is the spirit of the song, and I'm Mister. I'm supposed to be Mr. Anti-Censorship, but I'll tell you, sometimes I can't help it. I've got to speak out because people remember the first line of the first verse is we've got the right to choose. That's very deliberate. It's a statement I wanted to make. If you're not pro-choice across the board, then you really shouldn't be singing my song, okay? But otherwise, you know, it's amazing to watch the song take on a life of its own. And what do you feel has been the enduring influence of heavy metal on the music world? Well, you know, heavy metal, like rock and roll in itself, was thought to be a flash in the pan, you know, come and go. But it is the cockroach of rock and roll and has existed for decades because young people need a way to express uh, dark emotions anger frustration depression uh you know the the you know, heartbreak and heavy metal is that ex- form of expression it really is and there was a study done um that showed that headbangers was recalled are better grow to be a better adjusted adults than of fans of other music, and, and I got called by Psychology Today, they said, why, D? Uh, and I said, because we get it out. We let it out, and we feel better after. You've got to let those things go. And at a rock concert, listening to a metal record, you can scream, you could shout, you can bang your head, you're sweaty and you're smiling afterwards, and you feel better for it. it it's a, sure, certainly was a life changer for me. I was an angry young man, and I am a very happy older man right now. And uh, Prairie, with that, I've got to move on to so, uh, pleasure talking to you. All right. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.
across the morning sky. All the birds are leaving. Ah, how can they know it's time for them to go? Before the winter fire, we'll still be dreaming. I do not count the time. Who knows where the time goes? Who knows where? Hi, this is Judy Collins on Arts Express, and today I'm telling you, first of all, have a great day, and be sure to remember Arts Express. This is Judy Collins, so cheers. Sad, deserted shore, your fickle friends are leaving. Ah, but then you Coming up next, tossing spare change of $600 each to a country plagued with millions of jobless, hungry, and homeless during this pandemic boasts over 5,000 and a half pages of billions of dollars for the military and other countries. And one rather bizarre entry, the U.S. threatening reincarnation sanctions against China. Yes, if China fails to acknowledge the reincarnation of Tibet's Dalai Lama. So with the deplorable current state of relations between the U.S. and China, how will that country hope to fare in the best foreign film category for the Oscars this year? Well, here to address that thorny issue is the director of China's Oscar entry this year, Peter Chan. His mixed-media dramatic documentary is Leap, about China's women's volleyball Olympics team through the decades, and touching on much more than volleyball and the many surrounding social, political, historical, and cultural issues. Friends keep telling me this is not the best time, and I wasn't sure if China would decide to submit a film or not to the Oscars. How America is going to receive the film, I can't control but I made the film with what I believe in. Here's Peter Chan phoning in from Hong Kong. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello, Peter, and welcome to our show. Thank you. Okay. What are your thoughts about Leap being considered for an Oscar here in the U.S., considering the current state of relations between the U.S. and China? I think it's, it's um, you know, I'm I'm a very positive person. I'm I'm yeah. I, you know I have wishful thinking and uh, all the time and uh, and uh, I I think that it's a double-edged sword and uh, it's very hard to say because we all know that um, Chinese relationships, not just with the U.S. but also internationally, is it as a turning point and that's one of the reason where you know one of the reason why I make the movie because there are changes in 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 the whole situation, uh, well, let's say the re-engagement of China in the 80s and and to today, China is being you know a power to be reckoned with and the relationship with different countries. Obviously, and I have friends telling me you know this is not the best time. But every year there is a submission for the Oscar Best Foreign uh, Best International Feature from every country, and um, 
And China was, um, you know, I was at one point, I wasn't sure whether Chinese uh, authority decided to submit a film or not. And ultimately, when China decided to submit, I thought that was a very good gesture, at least from the Chinese authority or the Chinese government, that, uh, you know, things haven't changed. Uh, but how the world is going to receive and how America is going to receive the film, it's it's something that I can't control. And I, I made the film with with what I believe in, and I believe the film is not a propaganda film per se. I think the film has, the first half of the film is very much about how China was in the 80s, and the second part of the film did, did address uh, concerns and also uh, did reflect the reality of how China is, uh, or the young people, the values of the young people have changed from this collectivism to somewhat individualistic, mm. and uh, which is more uh, aligned with with the values of of the world and um and and in that respect uh, the film is is to a certain extent uh not unanimous in its response in china uh because people that believe in collectivism uh which was totally uh, uh, uh portrayed in the first half of the film are finding problems with the second half of the film because the second half of the film is more about what you want instead of what you want to do for the country. And in that respect, uh, politically, you know, in the film, there there were some controversies uh, among, you know, Internet, uh, you know, netizens and how they respond to the film. But I think it's something that I cannot avoid, and I think it's something that I cannot just overlooked and just just make a film uh you know that doesn't have a split in the middle uh between the first half and the second half because that's the reality of of china that's a reality of how the world evolves and changes now your film begins with the quote community first work together please explain and why you began the film with this quote I think that line basically it's uh I mean being from Hong Kong it's also something that is um you know we need to connect with the Chinese audience that is something that is uh, uh a very uh Chinese thing in a way for the Chinese audience um that uh, I was not sure that it was absolutely meant for the international audience but but you know to, to the film's integrity and the film's uh, entirety, for the fact that for the audience that it's made, I, I did not take that line out of the Chinese, uh, uh, the international version. Okay. And what about yeah. your other beginning statement? Women's volleyball represents the spirit of an era. Please elaborate. That is very, that is very important. I mean, that to me is the theme and, and probably the motif and the, and the, you know, and the the whole purpose of making a movie. Uh, I'm I'm not a sports fan, you know, and uh, but but I've made two sports movies now, and um, and I don't even watch a lot of sports movies to be very honest. To me, uh, what attracted me to uh, this movie about the Chinese woman women's volleyball national team, it's the four decades that it went through, and also. The fact that it's it's not just a sport and it's it's not just volleyball and obviously not just a sport because it it just coincided with the economic reform and the beginning of the open door policy, which is completely a new era and new hope for China back in the late seventies, early eighties. And um, you know, for the time that I've been working in China, I live in Hong Kong and grew up in Hong Kong. I've never lived in China, and I've never even been to China, to mainland China, uh, until 1993. And all I've heard about from reading when I was a teenager, and also from all the intellectual friends that I've met in China that I've made through the years, uh, kept telling me about how beautiful the 1980s was. And um, it's almost like the 60s in the U.S. You know, again, I missed the 60s because I, I was born in 62, so I was a bit too young. Yeah. 
so to me, that was almost like like someone younger looking back at at the, at at a very beautiful time of a certain culture of a certain society. And to me, that that was really the main reason. The first half of the movie is the main reason why I wanted to do this film. And and then as I as I was doing research, I was trying to see the ups and downs and the rise and fall and ultimately the rise again of the volleyball team, the women's volleyball team and their their history in China. It also shows the changes uh, of the Chinese society through the last four decades. So to me, those lines were important because. Chinese women's volleyball happened at a time. The rise of Chinese women's volleyball happened at a time where China was trying to be engaged with the world after decades of closed door policy, and uh, and there was this eagerness for Chinese to be to be seen and to be recognized by the world, and that consists of the spirit of the Chinese women's volleyball. And as you see, we put in a little bit of a documentary footage in the beginning of. Of those eyes and those innocent eyes of people who are really yearning to be recognized and to be seen, and 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 I think that that sets the tone of the film. And I, I went to the casting people, uh, not for for our lead actors and actresses, but for all the players of the '80s and all the extras that were and ended up going to be you know employing for the film. I said you got to give me at least fifty to sixty extras that would be able to follow through in the film, and and be extras that are more prominent in more in front of the camera that has that look of innocence and yearning, and and to me that that was probably the most important thing for the film. And I was wondering because we don't really see the players interacting with the countries that they visit. I was wondering about the Chinese team in Japan in 1981, when not so long ago Japan had committed massacres and war crimes in the millions mm-hmm. in China and has yet to apologize, and how the Chinese team felt about that in visiting Japan back then. I think there is a very peculiar relationship between Japan and China. I mean, even to today, I mean, we see a lot of news of you know anti-China, anti-Japanese sentiment, and uh, we also read sometimes that the anti-Chinese sentiment sentiment in Japan is higher than anywhere else in the world, and and I think that's rightly so because it's it's a two-way street, you know, uh, and um, I think that, but the reason that I use the word peculiar is somehow. In the economic reform and in the open door policy of China, Japan was the first country that jumped on a bandwagon, if not leading the bandwagon, of befriending China. So there were a lot of interactions between Japan and China, and and out of out of those interactions, whether it be it engagement because of. Uh, what happened in the history and trying to be friendly again, or because of uh, politics uh, or economic reasons, uh, there were. If you look back in the late seventies and the early eighties, and even if you look back at the at the sixties, because that's really where Chinese women's volleyball team began. One part that I didn't put in the film was. The reason the Chinese women's volleyball team was so great was because they were trained by one of the greatest Japanese coach in the '60s, you know. And the Japanese coach was in personally invited by Premier Zhou Enlai to come to China, and he trained the Chinese, the first generation of Chinese team, which was actually the generation before the the the, the people we see in the '80s, in the late '70s. And they were all trained by this Japanese coach, and and somehow the Chinese women's volleyball team and their technique were somehow uh, a legacy of one of the greatest Japanese coach. That part I didn't put in the film because it could probably be a bit too politically sensitive, but 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 somehow the relationship between the Japanese team and the Chinese team was actually pretty 
non-adversarial. But of course, when you're on this on on the court trying to play each other, you know they're your enemy. But deep down, if you see some documentary footage, they were very friendly. And what is the situation like now in China? Recovered from the pandemic, I saw a wonderful documentary about this Wuhan, Wuhan. Yes, I'm. I'm not sure that I can give a very precise answer to that question. Uh, the fact that I'm a Hong Kong director, and since the movie was supposed to be released in the Jan- late January. Uh, Chinese New Year, and uh, I did my premiere on the 19th of January, and then I did a lot of junkets, and I left on the 22nd. I haven't been back in mainland China. I was in Hong Kong. I know Hong Kong is China, but Hong Kong is is quite different in terms of you know the uh, the pandemic. You know, we're still having a hundred cases a day, uh, which is pretty bad for Hong Kong. I mean, yeah. Of course, it's in, not in comparison to. Uh, the U.S. or Europe, <laughs> but somehow with seven million population, we have like a hundred cases a day, and we still carry on our lives. It's not as usual, but it's it's still pretty much in a scare. But I've been told that um, economic activities has resumed a great deal. Mm-hmm. Cinemas are opened. I mean, cinemas are all closed in Hong Kong this last month again. You know, with the fourth wave of the. Uh, of the pandemic, yeah. so it's it's very hard for me to gauge. I I haven't been able to fly to China at all. I didn't. E- I wasn't even in Beijing for the final release of the film in the late September because I I had to be quarantined. Um, and then we were presented with the um, the Chinese Oscars um, in the beginning of December. No, actually late. November on November 28th and I was trying to fly there for that and then it needed a 21 day quarantine which I couldn't make so I I actually haven't been in China in the last 11 months. Mm. Now one contrast that might be observed between China and the U.S. when it comes to Mm. competitive sports is that in the U.S. the notion of individualism and competitiveness against everyone else is a natural ideology and in harmony with the idea of competition. But in China, the collective idea is embraced. So how would you say that contradiction plays out culturally in China, and perhaps in your film as well, the collective and the communal versus individualism and competitiveness? It's uh, in a volleyball sport because it's it's a team sport anyway. So it is not as individualistic as... um, Tennis, per se, mm. because I just did a film on about a tennis champion. Mm. And um, so it's very different. My other film about the, the tennis Grand Slam champion is completely individualistic because tennis is very much about one person. Yeah. Uh, but however, uh, like I said, I did show a certain degree of, of attitude or values changes between the players and, you know, Dealing with questions like who, why do you play volleyball? Uh, do you love volleyball? Uh, are you playing for your country? Are you playing for yourself? Are you playing for your parents? You know, stuff like that. So, so to that extent, there is a difference between the players in the 80s and the players now, you know, the national team now. Uh, but is that so much different? I, I think for the players today, I think the difference is it's not that big, you know, between a U.S. team and and the Chinese team. But um, uh, the players in the 80s, also because of the fact that that's, you know, where China was at uh, in the situation with what's going on in China as a society and as a people. I mean, the kind of sacrifice, the kind of playing for your country um, is is probably, I know team sports when the national anthem and the flag was raised, everybody is proud to a certain extent. Uh, but I think it probably meant more in the 80s for the Chinese players than mm. players from anywhere in the world. Yeah. But today, I, I would think they are, they're probably pretty similar or compatible. Okay, thank you so much, Peter Chan, for calling into our show. Right. And the best of luck at the Oscars. Thank you, thank you. Okay, bye. Bye.
and the Oscars will be taking place April 25th, 2021. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Global Television Beat with his top small screen picks of the year, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and that he watched 140 of them so you don't have to. First, a little of one of his picks, Home Before Dark. The results of the latest Gallup poll, half the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes and get your asses back in gear. We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's, Nothing's riding, riding on, on this except, except the, the uh, First Amendment and the Constitution. Constitution. Freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Is that Dad? My best friend. He was taken right in front of me. I want to see the police report for Richie Fife. Can someone deal with this? I'm not going away. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Year of Living Digitally, 2020 Top 30 Global TV Series. I watched 140 series this year and was able to call a top 30, which with some categories combined is really 35. Thus, one-fourth of the series I watched were praiseworthy, a high number, but that does not count maybe 400 series I monitored and then passed because too derivative of other earlier better series and films or whose subject matter and treatment promised socially irrelevant diversion and not particularly well-executed diversion at that. This mediocrity will accelerate in 2021 with the entry of more money into the conglomerate streaming race. This year's top 30 from 12 countries also expands the notion of series, including one retro anthology series that today looks more prescient than ever, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, discoveries of previous series based on this year's creators, Misha Lovecraft Country Green's Undercover, and weekly and topical news and commentary series necessary in the age of Trump and Biden, RT's Redacted Tonight, Seth Meyers and Amber Ruffin on Late Night. Also included is one shining moment of truth-telling, Ricky Gervais' Golden Globes monologue that, because it was so honest, stood out like a sore thumb, not only during award season, but for the entire television year. And forthwith, the top 20. Home Before Dark, first great series from Apple TV+, Plus about a preteen journalist whose truth-telling exposes the embedded masculine power structure in a small town in Washington state. Hildy's online dispatches bring together an African-American boy and an Asian-American girl, a female deputy who must question her male superior, and the pint-sized reporter's lawyer mother, all to write a past injustice visited on the area's indigenous Yakuma population. Superbly differentiated characters and an exceptional cast highlight the storytelling. A Christmas Carol. Stephen Peaky Blinder's nights answered a Christmas dribble like Jingle Jangle. Knight's imagining of a nearly unrepentant Scrooge as prototype capitalist owner resounded throughout this year of Jeff Bezos profiting from his own tiny Tims without allowing them bathroom breaks. Knight's version is a very peaky and very profound reimagining of Dickens' tale, which had lost its bite in too many syrupy retellings. Bad Banks Fintech, the infiltration of the tech industry by the financial industry, is a subject of season two of this superb German series. Jenna's megabank expands, and she's sent to corrupt a startup designed in its idealistic phase to aid sustainable development. This interpenetration reminds us of a moment long ago and many galaxies away 
when Google's model was don't do evil, a moral imperative now become a punchline. For Life, the series produced by 50 Cent and based on a true story about a black prisoner who became a criminal lawyer and defended inmates was in the year of Black Lives Matter's questioning of the criminal justice system, a clear-eyed and penetrating look at how justice in the U.S. and the West is aligned against minority defendants. Aaron Waltz's struggle against a corrupt prosecutor played alongside and amplified calls in the street for police and justice to be halted. Berlin, Babylon, or Babylon, Berlin. Season 3 found police detective Gary Unrath and his female accomplice Charlotte Ritter drawn ever further into the developing fascist morass that will eventually spell the end of the Weimar Republic. A financier Nazi sympathizer preaches chaos as the stock market collapses and the army and the police reveal themselves to be centers of a fascist cover-up. Amidst this carnage, Garion and Charlotte are more hard-pressed than ever to defend the fading democracy, and Garion is introduced to a new book titled Me and Kampf. Couldn't be more prescient as proud boys take to the streets to support Trump's attempted coup, perhaps brandishing copies of Art of the Deal, this generation's fascist manifesto. If this isn't Weimar, it certainly is Weimar-ish. The Valhalla Murders. This Icelandic series, now on Netflix, begins in a very cliched serial killer romp involving the long-ago psychological debris of the violence of a boarding school. Stay with it, though, because the series at its midpoint takes a surprising turn as the effects of the initial exploitation work its way upwards to engulf layers of the criminal justice system, a stunningly effective and vastly underrated series. Normal People. This BBC and Hulu co-production, based on the Sally Rooney novel, is an acute examination of not just the triumph and the pain of a first love, but also the horrific and persistent ways that class divides people as we watch a working-class boy and an upper-class girl alternately find each other and fall victim to the layers of distrust in themselves and in Irish and capitalist society as a whole. Money Heist. Seasons 3 and 4 on Netflix attempt to disprove the age-old adage that you can't go home again, or in this case, you can't rob Spain's national bank after robbing its national mint. The professor and his team this time are melting down gold in the post-U.S. dollar world, where countries are hoarding this precious commodity ahead of a U.S. currency collapse. The season should have concluded the robbery, but the streaming service opted to delay the outcome to peak interest in another season, a move which weakened season 4. George Scott. This Swedish series brought together various strands from other films and series and wove them into a new subgenre, ecological horror. Season one had forests, which cover half the area of the country, under pressure from a logging cabal, with a Stockholm detective in search of her long-lost daughter becoming ever more involved in the need to recognize and preserve a verdant nature being destroyed by greed. Season two had her returning to Stockholm, but with her connection to the forest, nourishing her fight to protect it. Homecoming, High Town, the high and low of the drug trade. Season two of Amazon's Homecoming has Janelle Monet as supposed victim of a corporate pharmaceutical company that in season one had annihilated veterans and cut loose an amnesiac Julia Roberts. Season two's only hero is another veteran who doggedly pursues the company's commercial lasciviousness and ties to the military. Hightown, on the other hand, charts the struggles of a Latina lesbian in drug-addled province town as she keeps hitting deeper bottoms but refuses to give up on her quest to become a detective. Ricky Gervais' Golden Globes monologue. Last time for sure, the comedian and inspiration behind the office will be asked back to what is more public relations stunt than acknowledgement of creativity. His mantra, as the monologue crossed the boundary from ribbing to active jabbing and exposing of the hypocrisy of liberal Hollywood, was... I don't care. High point was the acquisition of a taboo subject in the entertainment world, the sweatshops in Asia that underlay Hollywood wealth. The disapproving look of the town's current wielder of soppy morality, Tom Hanks, priceless. Fearless, this 2018 series labeled at the time for the conspiratorially minded, instead has Peaky Blinders' Helen McCrory as a crusading attorney who uncovers a secret behind Tony Blair's criminal rush to enlist Britain in the Iraq war against the will of the country. McCrory's unearthing of the collateral damage of the war on British democracy as Blair blindly followed the U.S. President Bush is worth a second look in light of the upcoming verdict on the U.S. extradition of Julian Assange with Britain 
as it supposedly embarks on its independent course post-Brexit, being asked again to surrender its sovereignty. Snowpiercer. Last year, we got Boon Joon-ho's Parasite, perhaps the most astute analysis of class tensions and contradictions ever put on the screen. This year, we have TNT and Netflix's series adaptation of his film Snowpiercer, about a class-segregated train that circles a globe frozen because of a failed technological attempt to subvert global warming. David Diggs is stunning and resolute as the revolutionary who carries his struggle for the oppressed backenders to the head of the train. With the reports that five years after the Paris Accords, the planet's temperatures have worsened, Snowpiercer is beginning to resemble not a far-off dystopia, but the evening news. Green Frontier, Colombian series on Netflix that centers on the Euro destruction of the Amazonian rainforest and the attempt by its indigenous and a female cop from Bogota to save the forest. While its Swedish compadre, George Scott, employs the tropes of horror, Green Frontier summons a Latin American mystical embrace of magical realism and its depiction of the timeless quality of the forest protectors versus the contemporary assault of loggers, corrupt law officials, and a mysterious ex-Nazi linked to the history of European exploitation of the continent. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, signing off. Ambrose picks for the year to be continued. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it. We all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out. They do it every time. The world won't get no better if we just let it be. Change it now, just you and me. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again.